Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. Oh man, Amos is here. (laughs) Oh no, you got a sound. (laughs) Perfect. Uh, this is gonna this is gonna be the worst episode ever oh the worst episode since the last episode (laughs) nice uh so do you only have uh sad trombone or yeah no that's that's it i just just the sad trombone oh sorry fam i thought maybe you had set up a whole soundboard Mm, no definitely not oh no what's that outside (laughs) <laughs> all right last, last question on the soundboard before we just have to go through the whole thing no we're not doing do, this do you have any sound bites from nba jam no no it's it's all stock i'm running i'm running stock currently it's nice yeah i'm gonna have to trick this this bad boy out get this baby up to 88 miles an hour this is this from the same company that makes audio hijack it is from the same company that makes audio uh, hijack and loopback yeah. All of this brought to you by the fabulous folks at Rogue Amoeba. Rogue Amoeba. I buy all their things. I should Le- just buy the package. I I spent some serious coin to pick up basically the entire package of stuff. And it's all really good. It works really, really well. It is highly intuitive. Even an idiot like me can get it all to work. It's very nice. It's the only way that we could get live streaming Twitch from the Mac yeah, OBS is still per- broken on the Mac, turns out. Yep, yep. So we used Airfoil, Airfoil by Rogue Amoeba. Oh, nice. I use Loopback to get my to get my OBS to work. And now oh, I'm prepared okay. to stream. I'm going to be calling out, I'm going to be, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be typing some code, I think. I'm going to type some code. And the whole time, I'm just going to be like, oh, yeah, the 720, 69, uh, no scope, 420, blaze it. Thanks for the uh, three-month resub, dude. Appreciate that. <laughs> oh, yeah, thanks for the bits. <laughs> I never thought that I would get to the day where people would sit at home and pay other we're so lazy that we pay other people to play the video games while we watch. You pay people to play sports, I don't know, like people I don't watch a lot of sports either. Well, I'm just saying like <laughs> I don't I, listen, I don't understand Twitch. I'm too old to understand to truly understand Twitch. Well, but, then I'm in trouble. <laughs> yeah, no, you're ancient. You're you barely understand the internet. <clears throat> I'm too old to really get Twitch, like at a fundamental level. But I do acknowledge that it's basically no different than watching people play anything else. It's like no, not really any different than watching people. It's just entertainment, right? It's like I don't know, right? I mean, people find I entertainment to, I doing to... whatever. But I, but I used to go to my friends' houses and watch them play video games, and I enjoyed that. Yeah, but I did it for free. You could still do it for free, right? So that's still that's, possible. That's why I don't pay people on Twitch to watch. It, oh, that's games. why. That's why you don't yeah. pay people on Twitch. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like, why would I pay you for what I can get for free? Why are you? <laughs> why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? <laughs> <laughs> that saying is used in way too many terrible places too. <laughs> what? A, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> oh so how's your uh elixir life going my elixir life uh it's good it's good good deal i'm uh, what exciting? am i doing what am i doing no not exciting necessarily what am i doing 
Mostly I've spent a lot of time working on resiliency. That's that's really where where all of my effort is going right now. And it's I it's going into a lot of things that I suspect the vast majority of Elixir users won't need or use. But is very fun to see the outcomes of uh, at work. What ex- what what area of resiliency are you looking for? Like keeping a a single system up, or dealing with external systems going down? And- right. Yeah. So that's well, all of it. Yeah. So when we when I talk about res- right now, what we're mostly focused on is a lot of plumbing. We're just building plumbing that is smart plumbing. And all of that plumbing is able to uh, to do the things that we actually kind of need uh, to do in bet- for all the calls that we're making to all these different services. So the thing is, okay, so all services. Well, how how do we, how do we how do we motivate this conversation? Service resiliency is about continuing to serve requests to meet demand, even when everything else around you is on fire. And it's important to note that um, the amount of requests that you actually need to service from any that you need to to provide that you need to satisfy uh, is based on some sort of actual target. Your target might be 10 requests a second, or it might be a thousand requests a second, or it might be whatever, but you have to pick a target. You have to say, this is the amount of requests we can actually service. And this is what we're going to say is going to be what we're going to count as success. Most companies just never need to do that because they only, you know, most companies would be thrilled to death to have a hundred requests a second. And at that point you can more or less just do it. Like, you know what I mean? Like it just doesn't matter. Like there's, you know, you're tuning database queries maybe or something like that, but it's, it's just like the simple is, is simple enough that you, that, that that is possible just to satisfy. And you can solve it with some pretty rudimentary, I would say that, that sounds that sounds like dismissive. You can solve it with the classic things of let's just scale horizontally or let's just scale vertically. Let's just give it more power. And we can probably just do to satisfy those hundred requests a second. And most companies would be would be thrilled to death to have a hundred requests a second. Like steady hundred requests a second. Right. So Once you get beyond that sort of threshold, though, I think once you enter into the next sort of order of magnitude, you experience a whole different set of problems. And that set of problems cannot be satisfied by just having more instances most of the time. Mm -hmm. And you have to get more selective about how you, about what requests you're going to satisfy which ones matter, which ones don't, which ones can be discarded, which ones can get a degraded request. And you just have to do that. Like you have to do that math because at the end of the day, that that's, that's what will get, will allow you to hit your targets, which means the targets have to be defined at all. This means you have to define the targets in the first place. And that's the part that I just don't think most people either need to do or, or, or do. Because um, it kind of only matters. Targets? Yeah, because it, it kind of only matters at a at a certain level, right? But it's something that we have to do because we're at a point where there's too many external things that any service depends on. That's part of it. 
So there's too many things that you can't control. Mm-hmm. And the overload scenarios, which is really, how do we talk about that? That A lot of the failures that you'll experience, a lot of what causes services to go down and for requests to fail is overload scenarios. And overload tends to happen because an external thing goes down, an external thing doesn't have enough compute power to keep up with what with your requests accounts. Uh, they have some sort of degraded experience. You're running on an EC2 instance with a thousand other containers, and those containers are all stealing your CPU, or you've got noisy neighbors, or whatever. You know, so many things can just go wrong, and then you get overloaded. And as soon as you start to get overloaded, everything goes to hell. And that's where that's where you you will find your inability to to meet the goals that you've set for yourself. Well, and I I, I see a lot of people with a a quick solution is is well we'll just turn on auto scaling. Yes, yes, and that's in my experience that is no good. It, it might be a band aid for a little period of time. It can get really expensive too, especially if it, you get like start to become steadily needing needing more. And then also you get downstream things of those services starting to be overloaded because now instead of one thing sending them requests, you have two or ten. You know, so you're you're just exponentially increasing the problem. Yeah. Pushing it down further in the stack. Right. And so my opinion is that uh, auto scaling is not really a part of your auto scaling in the sense of I've got a minimum of five and a maximum of 10 instances or whatever it is. I've got a minimum of five and a maximum of 40 instances that I'll deploy. Uh, that's not resiliency. And it's not because it, it that it doesn't equate to resiliency because it doesn't talk a, at all about how you're going to handle failure. And it also, the idea that you can gain some amount of resiliency by auto-scaling is predicated on the idea that the thing that your service is dependent on, be it a database, another service, whatever, has an infinite well of compute to draw from. Right. You know, if you've got, let's just, let's make it simple, right? You've got a app, you've got some sort of service and you run some number of instances of that thing between one and n, and it talks to a database. The only way that horizontally scaling works is if the database has more capacity for requests than your application servers do. Mm-hmm. And and that is true forever, by the way. You know, I mean that is like like if you look at sort of a maximal a maximal view of the world, auto scaling to infinity only helps if the compute power of the database is infinity, which of course isn't true. It just so happens to be that the database tends to be higher throughput, have more capacity than most of our application servers do. Mm-hmm. That is less true in certain runtimes. It is more true in runtimes that can do one thing at a time. Right. Because then you really do gain a lot more capacity just by having more app instances. So, but even in that scenario, right? Let's say that you can, let's say you, your database does become the problem. Well, how does that manifest? You know, you've got some, you're running some really long query. You're locking tables. You've added some sort of inefficiency or maybe just something's misconfigured, right? Something bad happens to the database. But you still need to service your 100 requests a second. Now, the rules of that 
are based on your business, right? Maybe you can serve the greater requests. Maybe you can serve stuff out of cash. Maybe stuff can be stale, right? Whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. How do you continue to serve 100 requests a second, though, if the database has a problem? Because the thing is, if the database has a problem and what you're auto-scaling on is, let's say, CPU measurements in the application server, well, how does the database being slow manifest in your application? It manifests by having a queue of requests that then need to be satisfied. Mm-hmm. And each of those requests are taking longer. Well, guess what happens then? All those processes that need to get out of your beam start increasing the CPU utilization of the beam. Your run queue starts getting backed up and you start trying to like jump between all these different things, especially if you've given the beam a very small number of cores and not a lot of CPU overhead, right? It now all of a sudden can't do all the work it needs to do. So guess what happens? Your CPU autoscaler thing looks at that CPU signal and says, oh, we need more of those. It's getting out of line. We need to, it's, it's, it's rising. We need to increase. So you increase. Guess what you just did? You just made your problem so much worse because <laughs> now you're, over, you're overloading the database even more. Well, and, and sometimes it'll, it can appear to work too. Like maybe you basically increase the size of the queue, right? Like one beam can only have so many, so many requests in the queue before it says, I can't handle any more requests. And then, so you spin up another one and all you're doing is increasing your queue size. Right, exactly. And then we get Little's Law. And it's just, it, <laughs> all you've done, it, you have not solved the problem and you've not hit your targets either. That's the mm-hmm. other big important thing is you've not hit your target. And if you don't hit your target, you've failed. That's that's the long and short of it. That's an outage at that point. Mm-hmm. So you have to be able to hit your targets. And which, which, again, predicated on the idea that you have targets in the first place, which most people just don't. It's I want to handle whatever amount of traffic that I can receive. And that works at low orders of magnitude. Uh, yeah. And and sometimes we have to deal with people who um, don't know, really know what their targets should be or mm-hmm. are. And, and sometimes we don't know. <laughs> right. And it doesn't feel good to say, actually, after 100 requests, we're okay yeeting all the rest of them into the, into the ether. Yeah. <laughs> no one wants to say that. Like that doesn't feel good. And your product manager is not cool with you saying you're gonna yeet requests into the ether. That's not that's not that's not rad. That's not math for them. So so then what do you what do you do to handle this? In my experience, we get into the the harvest and yield right. discussion. It's right. it, yeah, it's precisely. And and the discussion I tend to have with with people, and at this point, I don't really have to have the discussion anymore because I've just had it enough that people get it. <laughs> I think most everybody gets it, although occasionally, uh, you know, you got to take them back to the wheel and continue to break them <laughs> uh, and be like, you can't do this. But the choice is, do you want to do you want to throw away 10 requests or do you want to throw all 100 away? Right. Do you want to throw away all of them or you want to throw away 10? And that's the choice you have to make. You can just throw you can throw away all of them if you want to. Or you to. said it a few times or degraded requests. Can I can I give them half the data? Right. Or some stale data out of a cache. Right. And and that's the thing is you have multiple layers, right? You have multiple layers of ways that you can fail. And so the first thing that we'll start doing is we start and uh, we start limiting the amount of requests that any given service can make to any downstream thing. Um, those limits are are discovered dynamically. We have a tool that I wrote um, called Regulator that is essentially like a adaptive circuit breaker. Mm-hmm. It just shuts off traffic or it only allows certain amounts of traffic through, but it's it probes the system 
and looks at latencies to determine that dynamically. And so if it determines, which is actually, by the way, just a side note, mind-blowingly cool. The other day, <laughs> I watched it start dropping traffic and I looked at the, I was looking at like the, you know, highly downsampled uh, metrics and graphs that are in Datadog. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I actually went and looked at like the P99s, I realized that there was database latency in a downstream service, like two hops away. And our front door API was able to figure that out and stop sending traffic to it because it was detecting these big changes in, in latencies. And it just immediately started backing off. And That's it's like, pretty awesome. It's pure magic to watch that happen. And it happens like instantly. It happened within, you know, like 10 seconds. So is, is Regulator internal? No, no, no. It's, that's open source. That's on my... It is? Okay. Yeah, it's just nobody uses it because nobody understands why they need it. <laughs> and, for, <laughs> and honestly, most people probably don't need it. And it also makes like highly specific trade-offs for our purposes. Like it's built to service these specific use cases that we needed at work. Right. It's all based on the idea of congestion, like con congestion control, like traffic control and TCP networks. Like all that research is from, you know, the 80s mm -hmm. and congestion avoidance and all that sort of stuff. So it's all based on that same math. And there's a bunch of other implementations of similar ideas uh, that are out there in the Erlang world that I've found. The most popular and kind of the Swiss army knife of this stuff is called Jobs. That's a really good library and really, really robust. But you definitely need to, one, know what you're trying to accomplish. You need to know the math. You need to like understand what it is you're even trying to do to understand jobs. And also, you really need to learn jobs. Like It's a complicated library because it, mm -hmm. it's a total Swiss Army knife. It's not even a Swiss Army knife. It's like a Swiss Army knife that you need to build yourself. <laughs> You know, but it's incredibly robust and and really, really good. Like it's a good library. So people should look at that. The other one that I know of that does similar things is called Safety Valve, which is a J. Lewis joint. And it's um it, it's also good. So those are good, worth looking at as well. Regulator is built for very minimal configuration. And uh, it's built to service our very, you know, it's it's built to service that's right. I would say it, it is very much built to service RPCs and kind of services calling other services and stuff like that. But in so, any case, so we so that's that's the first step for us is we immediately start backing off. We start dropping traffic. We just don't allow you to call it because it's like okay, well, we already have you know every every service has a capacity, has some mm -hmm. sort of limit. Some, and that we refer to that as the concurrency limit. And the concurrency limit might be this thing can handle 10 requests at the same time or it can handle 100 requests at the same time or it can handle 10,000, right? It's some number. The thing is, is that number is never actually static. That number is dynamic based on the system and the things that it's depending on and the things and the rest of the ecosystem, right? The, the, the world that you live in. Mm-hmm. You know, your noisy neighbors and all that stuff, which is why we attempt to discover that that limit dynamically. And that's what we refer to as the concurrency limit. Um, and we do that both on the server side. So the server keeps track of its own latencies and will start to drop load at the door. We just have a plug that immediately says, nope, can't handle traffic. So we're drop. We're just going to drop you. We're not even going to try to service this. So what happens to the people that are utilizing your service? Uh, they just get like a, they get like a, what is the status code? They get like a, we don't have capacity for this. 
Okay. They just immediately get dropped, right? So they get you get you just toss it back over the wire to them. We also listen for those errors, and we listen on the for the latency change on the client side. And so the client starts doing preemptive dropping as well if it believes that the downstream service is also unhealthy. It just won't bother calling it because why go over the wire for a thing that's not going to be satisfied? Mm-hmm. So it stops sending traffic as well. And then we make a choice based on use case. Is this something that we can then serve out of a cache? Is this something that we can just degrade? Can I return a partial result for this? And Or do I have to fail the entire thing? Because one, one request to the front door might be five API calls to downstream services. So if one of those fails, is that like a deal breaker? Do we just have to fail the entire requests? Or can we serve something degraded? Can it be stale? Can whatever? You start making those determinations, right? And that's mm-hmm. like your first layer. You start thinking through like how you're going to start failing. And at some point, if that's not good enough, because the thing is degrading requests can still take time. Right. At some point, that stops working. And then you start tr- figuring out like, can I serve this from like a static, can I just serve a static content page? Can I just serve anything, right? Can I, can I get traffic off of this altogether? And you start falling through all these different bulkheads, right? And then eventually you're like, oh, now I'm down. Now things are just bad. Now I can't recover at all. And I just like shut off traffic to the front door or shut off some amount of traffic to the front door, right? Start just degrading, start dropping traffic before it even gets into the system. And there's a there's a threshold of that, right? I want to drop five percent of traffic, and then I'm, and then 10, 20, 30, 40, 100. You know, like you start falling through all these gates, and thinking about failure in that way. Thinking about how am I going to allow this to fail? How am I going to build failure into the system at a fundamental level, and then control that failure such that when stuff breaks, it breaks under my auspices. It breaks under my conditions. I get to decide how this is going to fail now. That is, that's, that's actually what system design and resiliency is all about. And thinking about failure as a first class thing. So that's, that's, that's what, that's what we end up building. That's what I'm like building plumbing and tooling around right now is like, how do you do that? And I think you can, you can sell the idea to use the time to figure this out by also I think what you said there is you get to decide how failure looks is like a, a good selling point to non-technical people too. Like, Hey, we get to decide what this looks like when things start to fall apart. Right. Cause they're going, they're going to at some point best laid plans. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And you start getting creative. So one of the, one of the things that we do is um, we have some of our requests are personalized. For instance, like we know that you are user X, and we want to show you stuff that's relevant to user to you as a user. But it turns out that that RPC or that query is really expensive because that's a big database call, or that needs to call some other data science thing or whatever you know, which is written mm-hmm. in Python and can only do one thing at a time. And it's like those are really expensive calls to make. So what we do in our front door for some of our operations is we run a um, we run a, a gen server that periodically refreshes a generic cache of certain content things and mm-hmm. stuffs it into um, 
a little Etz cache library that I wrote called Mintat. And if we start degrading personalized requests, we have a fallback to a generic thing. That's like, okay, well, this is like the top stuff that most people see. Or this is like, you know, this is something approximating what you want. But we can't actually get you your content, so we're going to get you something that's close enough. So at least we're still serving something. Right? So, and we just run that as in, as our every front door just has one of those processes that keeps like a cache warmed up. And, you know, and then if it's there, we serve that. And if not, we don't. And if it's not there, then that's when we start falling through like these layers of failure, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, most of what we've talked about on how to handle failure here is with serving data. Mm-hmm. Um, so somebody requests data from us. How? What have you done whenever you want to handle like incoming data? Like s- people are trying to send you data and you have to write it somewhere mm-hmm. and that starts having failure. Because that scenario, to me, is a lot different. Right. So my opinion on that stuff is that uh, all of the writes, all of the ingestion that you do, and actually also, to some degree, all the reads you do, um, although I think it's less crucial for for our specific purposes, and I think for a lot of the apps I've worked on, reads kind of don't, reads can be stale, because that's just the nature of the internet. Like data is stale the second you load the page. Right. And then you hit refresh or whatever. <laughs> like, you yeah. know what I mean? Like everybody just knows that you're getting a snapshot in time. So it's kind of like less important for reads in my experience, although not universally and not, you know, definitely not universally for all problems. And there are specific problems that that timeliness really matters. And, and another thing that I find that runs into it that doesn't seem to be like, part of the I guess it is part of the problem but is actually the age of your audience right um people who are younger mm-hmm. younger than me even have a tendency to deal with uh latency in in data like I wrote this but I can't see it quite yet a whole lot better than than an older generation right um like I feel like I'm right on the cusp of both at my age right uh, because I went yeah, to reload and, this and, page, but well, then the data just is it, not there anymore. And when I clicked thing, the button, it just, <laughs> I was expected to do, well, I went and I went to check on my Medicare and I couldn't see what. I'm not trying to call anybody out, but it, I mean, it's, it's just like, a, but with a, my a, rheumatism, I'm not able to, to a really, natural, a natural thing. I cannot if you grip grew up this, with, with this mouse, right. Versus when I write it on a piece of paper, it's on the piece of paper. Didn't there used to be a very helpful <laughs> paper clip on this application? I would, I loved, he was so useful for me. But You're now, well, my, eye, my, my, my eyesight's not what it used to be. I think it's a soundboard time. <laughs> so writing, how do you do, how do we deal with writing? Well, okay, yeah, going back to that, I think, all of the different RPCs that you're going to make, I think it is, my experience is that it's more important for writes, although that's, I'm going to get in trouble for saying that. People will have comments about that. Um, but all of your RPCs really have a priority. 
and and there is a sliding scale of priority for every request that gets made. Some of them just are more important. And that is the truth. <laughs> like we don't we don't talk about that a lot, mostly because it's hard to assign priorities in the same way that like you know, if you're doing if you're, if you're in the class of agile people who still puts points on things, you know, that's <laughs> like it's like pointing, right? It's like what the it's it's whose line? You know, who knows? <laughs> You're going to get me all worked up. You start talking about points. There's only three correct points. And also, let's... One, too big, and no clue. Those, those are the only three the, possible... And, and, also, and also, points are, are based on complexity, not time. Correct. Okay. It's hard for people to think in complexity, though. Yeah. Well, Sometimes. in any case, <laughs> it's not days. Points aren't days. No. No, or we'll hours. come back to it. We're going to come circle yeah. back to that. I was literally in a meeting where somebody a different was like, episode. Different somebody episode. was somebody legitimately asked, "How can we have thirty-five points in a sprint, but there's only thirty days?" And I about lost it. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> <clears throat> so hey, every yep. RPC you have has a priority, and you really need to sort of assign them. Um, and the thing is, the other thing is that the caller is the one who gets to assign them. The server doesn't actually get to assign the priority. The caller assigns the priority. Because if you've built an API that is utilized by more than one caller, that necessarily means that you no longer understand all of the ways in which your API is being used. And it means that for certain callers, that thing, that RPC succeeding, is a, is like make or break for that for their ability to do work versus mm-hmm. someone else who's saying, uh, actually, it's fine. It's actually okay if this doesn't pan out for this request today, right now. So those RPCs have a criticality to them. They have a priority to them, and like I said, the caller gets to determine that. It shockingly, or not actually shockingly, but a thing that I don't think a lot of people think about a lot is that the caller gets to determine most of the semantics about a call, about any given call. It, it gets to determine what failure looks like. It gets to determine what criticality looks like. It gets to determine all these things. So it gets to determine the latency. You know, it the caller matters a lot in these systems. Uh, and that's a thing that I think we discount. But all that to say, you assign, you need to assign a priority, and then your your plumbing really needs to get good at when it's shedding load, being smart enough to start shed start shedding less lower priority requests. Um, and you just have to get comfortable saying, yeah, like for, for us right now, this isn't that this for us at this call site, this RPC isn't that critical to our, our ability to do work. We can do something else if that doesn't pan out and we just allow it to be shed. Mm-hmm. Right. And you just have to allow certain things to be de- like, critical more critical than others and you need to be you know so, you need to be conscientious so of that what kind of things do you use for determining priority like do you have a prioritized these these endpoints versus these endpoints are prioritized differently or this customer versus this customer or like combinations or are there other things out there no i mean so i, I guess in a sense it's in it's endpoint by endpoint based uh, so when I say RPC, I just mean like you're making a request, right? You're making some sort of you're making some sort of call to an external service and saying, "I want you to fulfill this." So maybe mm-hmm. that's a 
a certain call to a certain endpoint or whatever. But each call itself needs to carry along its priority. So if I'm okay. making a request to the user's endpoint, that will have a criticality to it. It'll have, you know, this is either critical or highly critical or not critical or highly not critical, right? Some sort of some sort of scale. It, in the request itself? Yeah. Or in okay. a header. I mean, I mean, it just needs to yeah. be conveyed in the well, request. Well, that's, yeah. that's what I... Header's part of the request as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just needs to be... It doesn't have to be part of like the payload, mm-hmm. but it needs to be conveyed in some way to the and, to the server. And then the server can make a determination like, hey, I'm shedding load right now because things are going bad for me. I don't know. You know, does doesn't matter why. Uh, things are not good. So anything that's lower than... So if I have a queue of requests to satisfy... I'm going to start dropping immediately all the ones that are low, low, low criticality. Right. It's going to just throw those away. So you have to have some level of trust in the person at that point. If they're sending their level of critical, you have to have trust in them to not just say, well, everything's critical. Mm -hmm. Everything's high. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, or you do the Google thing and you just default your, you just, you just default the the priority to critical <laughs> yeah that's, that's literally just, like it's that's not just literally Google. in the in the in the sre book is is they just default to critical and then there's one above that and then there's two below that but everything right. starts at critical and so you, at some level you you have to just have an engineering organization that is aware of the fact that you're going to drop traffic at some point every service is going to drop traffic every service is going to throw away requests and you have to be comfortable saying that and you have to get comfortable with the ramifications of that, meaning that every service needs to be defensive. Every service has to take into account the fact that they could get overloaded. And if a downstream thing is, they have to be a good neighbor. That's just like has to be built into the system, mm-hmm. which, you know, is possible to do. But it, again, it, it only really matters at at the point where you no longer can hold all the entire system in your head. You know, it only matters if you've if you've got. I won't say it only matters. It matters a lot more if you're if you've got all of these dependencies. If you have an app server talking to an database, right? You can put fairly rudimentary safeguards around that. You know, you could put a regulator around all your database calls. You can put a circuit breaker around your database calls. And if your database is down, you don't bother making the call, but then you can start falling back through some sort of failure. And it's a lot easier to mm-hmm. manage. Like not everybody has to care about criticality at that point because you're just, you know, maybe your one app server does or whatever. And that's that's a lot easier to manage, obviously. And when you start dealing with these kind of things, uh, one thing that I wasn't cognizant about when I started is actually that sometimes checking like, should I be serving a request or not? Should I Mm -hmm. be serving out of the cache? That actually is going to add overhead to the request. Right. So yeah, like if I have to say, uh, what is my database latency before I determine whether I'm going to give them a static version or not, Mm -hmm. that is overhead on every single request where you're still able to serve real time. Right. So you might be adding, you know, 20 milliseconds to every request in order to make sure that you can gracefully degrade and keep your service running instead of crashing. Right. Yeah. Your capacity can most definitely be affected by these, by these sorts of tools. Mm -hmm. Regulator specifically, the way we do that 
is that uh, the way we try to like re reduce the amount of overhead is that essentially everything all is determined by the caller process. So we look at we look at counters and ets uh, to determine if we're above or below the concurrency limit or if we have available concurrency left. There's still coordination that happens there, right? You can have locking contention on an ets table. So right. um, you still have a contention there, uh, which is, you know, a thing you try to reduce. And so, yeah, you're totally right. Like you can have contention on all these sorts of checks. And sometimes, you know, the, the real thing is like, it can be just as fast to serve if if all your requests are coming out of memory, mm -hmm. like it can be negligible difference to serve it to serve a request out of an ETS table as it is just to reject it. Great. So you know if all you're doing is one more ETS lookup, and so, and you don't do any major serialization work on that, you just like grab it out of ETS and drop it and send it back over the wire. It can take a. It's like you're maybe adding negligible latency right as opposed to just re rejecting the request wholesale so you have to sort of reject it as early as possible on the server side which is which which is why you have to reject it on the client like you just stop calling the thing so so you you said something that i think might get hidden in there and that's the um now I'm, i blanked out on exactly what you said but if you don't have to munge the data after it pulls out of ets it can be negligible you didn't use munch uh yeah whatever yeah right, right right so so that's that's one thing that i found really important is if you can cache a full response and it's already ready to go out the door level mm -hmm. that can save you a ton of time yes and actually allow you to become get back to more real-time surfing quicker mm -hmm. because you you've sh you've thrown all that load away and you've gotten people off your back so now you can continue to to move forward Right, precisely. And yeah, if you're serving stuff out of, if you're, if you're pulling the data out of ETS and then converting it into JSON, boy, is that a bad time. Right. <laughs> like that's a terrible time because it, it, you're, you're wasting time in that serialization step. And JSON is slow as hell. I mean, not. I could, mean, just, just JSON encoding generally is slow as hell, right? Not JSON the library, but just converting to JSON is so slow. So, so store the JSON in your cache. Yeah, if you can, yeah. right? If you if you can do that, and then, and you might not be able to. That's the thing is like if it is a highly personalized result, you may not be able to. If it's if the liveness of it is is not possible to store it that way, you can't do it that right. way. Right. right. So that's that's where those that's where those decision making things have to start coming in. Or if you need to take that thing and then put it into another thing. You know, I mean, there's all these other rules, there's all these other caveats, but and sometimes think about how you can make that decision without necessarily having the data. And then you can store those decisions under different keys. Mm -hmm. Actually had decisions just build the key <laughs> and then and then go get the right data. But I think, but you know, this, all this kind of failure. So, oh, the other big one's deadlines, and this is something we're doing. We've started doing now as we've kind of aligned on a unified RPC framework for all of what our you, internal calls. Is deadline just um, I have to respond to you in a certain amount of time? Yeah, a deadline okay. is is literally you need to respond in this amount of time. So the way that manifests is the minute 
that the, 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 the first chance we get in our front door API, we assign a deadline. It's actually assignable by the client, but like the, the, the mobile client or the JSON or the JavaScript like web client could actually specify like you have this amount of time to service this request. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some checks and there's like some checks around that to make sure that that's not like a, to make sure that's not like an attack vector or whatever, but we assign a certain amount of time that it takes that you're allowed to take to finish a request. So every, you know, every time you make a downstream call, the next call has less time. So let's say, for instance, there's two seconds. You have two seconds to satisfy everything, which is a very high, that's a very high, high, high amount of time. Right. But we'll just say you have two seconds. If the first call takes 1.7 seconds and you need to make two calls and they're serial, and then the next call, so the first call would have a deadline of 1.7 or, well, two seconds or whatever. You just propagate that. The next call now has 300 milliseconds. That's what you have mm-hmm. left to satisfy. And you send that you send that amount of time along with the request and it just, it just propagates to the next thing. And so in the next service, the next service reads that value uh, in milliseconds is typically how we send it. Mm-hmm. And then it turns it into an actual deadline that it can, there's technical things that this is also a library that I have on my GitHub called deadline, which people can go look at. It uses process dictionary. Um, so people will have feelings about that. But um, what it actually does, what it actually uh, does, is it looks at system monotonic time and it adds the amount of, it adds the actual amount, like milliseconds that you've specified. Mm-hmm. And so if you go over that, it just starts, it starts saying, "Now you've exceeded the time" or whatever. Do you use that only at a top service level, or do you use it at like internally? If you have a Gen server that you're passing a message to, you send them a lower a shorter timeout. So that's the thing is now you can start to use it for everything or you can use it. Well, or you can use it for everything. You don't have to, you can use it for things that need to be timely. You can Mm -hmm. use it for things that have to happen in the critical path of that request. So for instance, if your gen server call has to happen in that, in the critical path of that request, then you could propagate, you could use that as the time, as the deadline for your gen server call. And that can be the default time timeout now. So now you're not, and the point of it is now you're not wasting compute resources to satisfy a request that the front door three steps away, three network hops away has already given up on. Right, right. So if I send a you're 50 millisecond, time. yeah, if I send a 50 millisecond deadline to a downstream service, that what that means is that my upstream service is going to wait 50 milliseconds and then it might retry right it might it might try again if it still has available time to do that in um, it might reissue those or with a higher criticality that time or whatever and it does that up to certain you know some amount of retries can make all those sorts of all those sorts of decisions anyway so if i'm waiting 50 milliseconds and then issuing a retry i don't want to waste compute power in a downstream service or in uh, or in a downstream service from the downstream service on a request that like has no hope of being fulfilled. So instead we rip that deadline out of a header and we use that to either cancel requests, stop making computations, stop doing computations, you know, or you shove it in the, the Ecto timeout, right? You know, you shove it in your database timeout and you just say, Hey, if you can't fulfill this in the next five milliseconds, I'm not doing it. doesn't matter. And then you just raise you're like, ah, get me out of here because I, I can't fulfill this anyway. And the upstream thing's already given up. So just throw an exception. 
log it right. to log it to the to the APM thing. We'll look at it in a minute, and and then you just you just cancel everything, and that allows you to really utilize to better utilize, I would say, your compute power. Some gen server calls, you know, you just expect that they might be long running. You've got some gen server that sits there and you don't care. It happens outside the critical path of requests. And you just say, if that takes five seconds, it takes five seconds. I'm not even going to be around anymore. At which point, maybe you just cast to it. Yeah. So when you're dealing with the cast, like asynchronous stuff, like the the cast Mm -hmm. type thing, I have seen one time, only one time in the wild. I've heard people talk about it a few times. I think it would be incredibly complicated to implement mm-hmm. but have you ever dealt with actually you, you said the word cancel mm-hmm. have you ever dealt with being able to send send a request and then later send a cancellation before the request is complete and have it halt the system have i ever like successfully done that yeah have you ever had to do that i have experienced that in the past um, there's kind of, I mean, my feeling is like, there's kind of not a good, there's kind of not good patterns for, for all that stuff, mm-hmm. or not, not patterns. There, there are patterns for that, that you can employ that do that. Cause essentially what you're recreating, there's a transaction when you do that. Right. When you, when you can say like, cancel this, mm-hmm. it's you're reinventing transactions at that point. The only time I saw it in the wild, there was, it was not writing any data. Mm-hmm. It was it was a report system that had these reports that would sometimes take hours. Oh, and so you could say like, "Can't just don't do this anymore." Stop. Yeah, it. stop. And it would. It, I know that the engineers had a really hard time because a lot of the report stuff, you know, would try to do things in parallel, things mm-hmm. trying to speed up these massive reports. I mean, these were reporting on millions and millions of data points, and so they would have it it spread out, but then they had to like tell all these different job type things. Hey, never mind. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and if you missed one or you would get a cancel like when you're 99% done. Right. And you're like, you know, those 12 reports behind you could have been done by now. Right. But you had the big report, you canceled it at the last second. So Thanks. at that yeah, at that point you're what you're basically reinventing is is like a saga, right? Yeah. If people are familiar with sagas. Okay, so I've seen Saga in two different places. The only one that I'm extremely familiar with is like you have a pipeline of work to do and you can inject in there into the pipeline and say, don't, so stop this at some point. Yeah, so a Saga is a way of doing distributed transactions. It's actually like fairly nuanced. But the here, like the the metaphor that I think I've heard a lot is like you're going you're going to go on a trip, and in order to go on a trip, you want to book a plane, you're going to rent a car, and you're going to get a hotel room. But those all three, th- those three things all happen in different services, and they can all succeed or fail independently of each other, and you can't really control that like they're just they're owned by different things you need to be able to account for that and so what you can use is this idea of a saga and the idea is that you would write to something durable and say i want this to happen i want to i want to go on a trip and this is these are all the parameters of my trip i'm going to book a ticket from here to here etc and then what the system does is attempts to fulfill those things so it attempts to get you know it goes and it books you a hotel room 
and then it goes and it books you a flight and it goes and books you a car. And if any of those things fail, the it goes back to the beginning of the system and says, okay, this failed. What do I do? Well, maybe you just keep retrying for some amount of retries. But if that's not possible, what you'll end up doing is you go back to the beginning and you say, okay, cancel this. And it actually issues highly specific, cancel my hotel room. Like I booked this hotel room, now cancel it. I booked my hotel, now cancel it. I booked my car, now cancel it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it actually knows how to issue each of those. The other important thing is it has, it, it has to keep a running log of all the things that it succeeded or failed at in order to know what to go back and, and undo in the future. So that's when you have to cancel long running stuff like that, maybe it's ephemeral. Like if it's like a reporting thing and you just like kill the process or you look up the process in your, in your cluster and you just kill it. Right. If it's something like that, where it could have side effects out in the world that, that matter, then you need to start working, worrying about how do you issue cancellations to all these other things. And then you, and you need a way to talk about that concretely, which that's where the saga pot stuff comes in and like ordering and all these, all these other things. That sounds like a whole new conversation. It's yeah, it's a big, that's a big, that's a big conversation. We should do that sometime. Yeah. Sagas are cool and are, and are very useful in the sort of the current landscape of tech. No, I just mean like if you're working in a big system that has a lot of disparate stuff with lots of services, like sagas can be a really useful pattern. Transactions in a single database are also very useful. It turns out. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, you know, <laughs> there's sort of a replacement for that. In a distributed system. Yes. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. So, but I think the, the interesting stuff really, I mean, all the technical bits and all this plumbing are all in service of the, I mean, the important thing to remember is that all those things are in service of the idea that you're going to sit and think about failure and allow for failure as a first class thing. And that's actually the much more interesting stuff because that, I've been thinking about that a lot and how we allow our tools to account for failure in a graceful way um, and how we allow our systems to account for that in a graceful way. Because I think I think this is where all of the academic-y kind of research-y stuff, I think this is where types, I think this is where like people who think that they can prove things, I think this is where all that dies. Right, because it's hard, it's hard to prove timing faults and... Well, yeah, I mean, so much of, here's the thing is so much of what people want to prove, right? It's like, a, it's a mindset thing. So much of what people want to prove in these things that in the, when they talk about like formalisms about computer science, right, is mm-hmm. I want to prove that there are no failure states. I want to prove that there are no error states. Like you just like essentially remove those. And so the mentality is like, I can just think about the system and design it such that it is like a pristine perfect application, right? Well, you you have to, there's a lot of assumptions that go into that. Like, I know every single use case. Right. right? And, like, and even using like TLA+. I, and plus. Anything I didn't account for is wrong. Right. Also, that's another important thing. But I think even beyond that, like if you look at like railway-oriented programming, right? Nothing about railway-oriented programming makes sense when you look at it through the view of, of, of resiliency and reliability. It all falls apart when you look at it from from that lens because you have to understand the failure right well and because the failures matter and the the railway oriented programming thing so much of it pushes failure 
way too far away from the call site. That's like literally the point. You're on the rail, you're on the railroad, and then failure is like this other thing that can happen. And you just like remove that failure from like your your equation, right? Like you you just all you see is signal now, right? Except that's not actually how it works when you look at it from the point of view of a resiliency. Right. She because the failure still gets to the end of the railway. And then if you are going to handle that failure, you're really far from where it possibly happened. Right. And and so yeah, you can read the happy path of your code in railway oriented programming really easily, but it gets really hard to to look at and comprehend the right. error path. And there is a way you can you could use railway oriented programming with these like branching error conditions in theory, right? Like you could you could still make all that work, but it is not the mentality, right? You have to totally shift your mentality to look at it uh, to look at that differently. And it just becomes really cumbersome. Like, be, I, I, you know, I've attempted to do that multiple times and I find that it falls apart really rapidly. Like you just can't mm-hmm. fall through enough with clauses. Like that just doesn't, uh, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't work out in the end. Like there's too many widths. There's too many external things. There's too many ways that, you, you know, there's too many fallback scenarios. Like all of that becomes really complicated. Yeah. When you're, when you're else in your with clause has like, five different matches and doing all kinds of things. It gets pretty nasty. Well, and it gets back to the design aspect of it, which is that you can't put a cache. Okay. So let's say I've got service a and I'm talking to service B and Mm -hmm. service a defines a client for service B, right? It's got all the, it's got tuned stuff. It's got all my HTTP calls and I have good functions to call that mask the HTTP, the underlying HTTP calls or whatever it is. Right to service B. Here's the thing. Your fallbacks cannot be designed into service B. You can't encapsulate your fallback into the service B client. And it gets back to the, because of what we talked about earlier, because the call site determines whether or not, like what you do with that. And if you're calling service B a lot in service A, then each time you call it, you need to make a determination about how critical that is, about how critical that call is, what you're going to do if it fails. You can't mm-hmm. dis- you can't make a choice generically. Or if you make a choice generically, it will be wrong for a, a certain class of things, and you'll have to work around that. So the encapsulation becomes really hard. The encapsulation has to move. Like the layer has to, the, the encapsulation layer for what you're going to do in fallback scenarios has to move a layer up above the HTTP client layer because you can't add a cache there. You have to add a cache above it at the actual call site where it matters, where you're handling that RPC. And that becomes really hard. That's also part of why the railway oriented programming thing starts to fall apart because there isn't a generic way to talk about all the error conditions. Your call site has to care about all the error conditions. And using the tools that are at our disposal in Elixir, like widths and all that sort of stuff, to, to do the railway-oriented thing, you end up with way too many else clauses. Because then you've got else clauses that call into more widths. And then, and, you know, it's like, if this fails in this specific case, and so you just, you know, it's, it's you end up with a proliferation of functions that need to, that need to be able to support all these different use cases. Right. You shut, or... If it's not right inside of the you're with, then you're shuffling it off somewhere else. Right. Yeah. And that becomes really, that becomes, and then you end up with a bunch of one-off functions that you use one time for the simple purpose of like, I wanted to use with. And 
that only works up to a, a point. And so mm-hmm. I think when you look at it from the lens of, I'm going to make this thing reliable, like really, truly reliable. Like it's going to fall through. It's going to fail in these ways. I'm going to allow it to fail in these ways. It's going to fall through the system in this way. Uh, it becomes tricky to do that in a, uh, in a, in a truly generic way and have maximal control over all that stuff. And so I think we don't quite have, or at least I don't have good patterns for that right now. That's something I've been thinking about a lot is how to incorporate that sort of stuff uh, in a way that is, uh, I would define as simple, meaning you've got functions that do a lot of things that are deep, that like provide value. Um, uh, but it's also still understandable and still has all this stuff built into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is just, I think that's really hard. That's a hard thing to, that's a hard pattern that I haven't figured out yet. Right now, my handlers for all my RPC calls are just big. It just, you know, it does, does a lot of stuff. Giant, like one function. I mean, it might call out to other stuff, but it's yeah. pretty big itself. Yeah, I mean, they're just big because they need to, you know, the errors matter. Like, I, I, it's like why I don't like the fallback that. controller thing, right? Yep. Because the errors matter. And the errors matter at the call site. They're not generic. They're never generic. Mm-hmm. And the more you make them generic, the more you push them farther away, the the more complicated your system gets and the less reliable it gets. Uh, I mean, if you look at just, just implementations of with frequently, um, people will tack up on some uh, uh, atom Mm-hmm. And return and have a tuple at each line of the width, so that when there is a failure, you know where it came from, so right. you know how to handle it. Right. And now you have your error condition pushed off somewhere else with a special atom that is may only be pertinent in that one location, like you said. And so, like you see, people trying to build little things to be able to use things like width or railroad oriented programming, but right. still capture that context and. To me, that means that all of that context should be captured in one place instead of spread apart. Right. And the way we do it right now, I don't think it's scale. When I say we, I mean literally me and other people at BR. The way we write our RPC handlers now, because we're sort of moving, we've, it's not like widely talked about right now, but like we're not really using Phoenix controllers and REST at all anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I mean, obviously, we still have all that stuff and we still have it to, so we still support it and like our legacy systems, but all of our new stuff is not that. Um, we actually, and the, the stuff we're using is much simpler. Uh, it's much like there's a higher signal there. We don't have to worry about the plumbing because we use an actual RPC framework now. Um, it's not gRPC. I'll just say that. <laughs> is so, it internal? Because it's, because it's, because gRPC, the G stands for garbage. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been my experience too. It does, it does use protobuf. No, it's not internal. It's, um, talk about later it's not relevant right now but like the what we end up with or what i've been doing a lot of is like your rpc handlers call use with to call these different functions and the functions do these sort of one-off things but as you add more handlers you need more one-off functions to make your widths actually look like real widths with railway oriented stuff and so it's not scalable in a way that i've from a code standpoint yet Mm -hmm. And contexts don't save you. Contexts are not our right out. Contexts are not the right answer because they don't provide enough encapsulation. Again, because you can't encapsulate it that way. The call site has to encapsulate it. So yeah, so it's really interesting right now. And 
the way I'm sort of moving to solve it is by making the handlers themselves uh, independent modules. And then that module can just do whatever it needs to do for that RPC. But that's not really scalable either. Like it's, it's, it's definitely, it decreases reuse. So there's really, there's a lot of interesting discussion around this. And I think it's, I think that's a really interesting design discussion. Like how do you make that, uh, how do you make failure a part of the system? How do you make the ability to grade a part of the system? And how do you make it scalable from a code standpoint? That's really hard. Yeah, I think we're going to have to have a whole discussion on that alone at some point. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because this, is, this yeah. is going long. Yeah, we are already at an hour. And I know that we both have things to do today. I could sit and talk about this all day. Uh, I've got like a whole page of stuff that I wrote down. Um, I do think that it would be good to leave some people with some resources to okay. start thinking about this stuff. So I'm, I'm going to throw one out there because we mentioned it a few times is uh, Harvest and Yield. Mm-hmm. Harvest, Yield, and Scalable Tolerant Systems. Uh, it's a white paper by Fox and Brewer. I think it's a great place to start to start thinking about just it's it's a simple way to handle failure. And and so I think that white paper is a great place for people to start. Yeah, I, I like that paper a lot. I'll we can add uh I'll add links to the other repos that I talked about. Um so people can check those out um if they if they're interested in them. Um I'm trying to think if there's other I mean a lot of this stuff that we're talking about is also in the SRE book, which is the middle part's really good of the SRE book. You should you should probably read the SRE, the middle part of the SRE book. The middle part. Well, yeah, like there's there's a lot of chapters in the middle that are really worth reading, and then there's a lot of stuff on the on either end that are like either platitudes or just uh, not relevant to most companies. Cool, but yeah, I'll have to I'll have to take a look. I haven't read that. I'm yeah, forward to it. it's free on the internet's. Sweet, I like I free. Think. All right, well, Keithley. It's been fun. Yep. Have a great day. Thanks for uh thanks for the adventure today. Yeah. And and the soundboard. I'm loving it. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. All right. All right. Take it easy. Later. <laughs>